Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast. I'm your host, Armin Shervanian, as always, and we'll be learning quite a bit as we move forward, as we tend to do. On this episode here, we have a guest coming from a far-off location, the author of this book I always like to showcase. Look at the color on this. I've got the color going like that through it. The book is called The Internet Is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. The author, Justin E.H. Smith. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad to have you on. And as far as the biography, Justin Eric Haldor Smith is an American-Canadian professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Paris, Denis Diderot. He has authored several books and is also a regular contributor to the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, M Plus One, Slate, and Art in America. That this sounds like Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know my Wikipedia article. <laughs> are there any um, large elements I have left out of there that are a key description of your background or to where you are currently? Uh, no. Um, good nope. enough. <laughs> cool. Nice. And you are currently at the University of Paris. You're coming from Paris, France. I yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm based in Paris. I've been here for 10 years. Um, uh, they renamed my university. It's no longer called University of Paris 7, Denis Diderot. Uh, they cut off the 7. Um, and now it's fused with Paris 5. Um, and we're in some conflict with Paris 1 and 4. It's crazy. It's It's impossible to make any sense out of the names of the various branches of the University of Paris. There's a number of battle going on. There's a number of battle that yeah. I didn't know about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty good. I didn't know that. I saw the number. I thought it might be a uh, like an added number or something, but no, it's actually the thing. Great. There are, yeah, there there were traditionally, or since like 1970, there have been 13 different campuses, uh, and now they're trying to kind of rebrand in a way that does away with the numbers because the rest of the world doesn't understand it. I think that's what it is. Oh, it's very interesting. The more you know, <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. Classic. Now, what has taken you to where you are currently from where you were before? <laughs> How have you ended up there? What are some of the forks that led you there? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I was just talking to my mother the other day and I was joking with her. Uh, that I got stuck uh, 32 years longer than I expected on my study abroad program. <laughs> um, I'm still on my study abroad program, uh, 32 years delayed. Because, um, I mean, basically, you know, I came to, came to Europe when I was 18. I was actually studying in Russia, um, which seems inconceivable now. Um, and uh, then, you know, I went on on numerous occasions to have, you know, fellowships and various engagements that would allow me to reimplant myself in Europe year after year after 1990. So that when, um, you know, when this position opened up at the University of Paris in 2012, just seemed like a natural fit for me. By that time, I had, I'd actually lived in Montreal for some years before that. And I got kind of looped into francophone scholarly communities and so that was you know kind of a natural fit eventually this is great mm -hmm. are you well versed in the language of french 
Uh, well, you know, I, I teach in French, and I um, lead my daily life in French, um, but uh, I don't write in French. Um, and, I mean, I write short emails in French, um, but my language of creative expression and of uh, uh, kind of the one that I am that I think I'll always only be on top of is my native language. Like, what is it? The Polish uh, uh, author, Leszek Kolakowski, he was famously polyglot, and someone asked him, how many languages do you speak? And he said, one, Polish, and I pretend to speak about 30 or 40 others, right? That's kind of like me. <laughs> um, I mean, there, it's clear that there's some, there's some way that, that, that your, your mother tongue remains kind of a fixed, basic orientation in the world, no matter what you go on to learn after that, right? That's true. Yeah. It stays with you. Polyglot versus polymath, which is a cool thing. I have recently realized I'm like, I'm, I'm going to identify with that. Yeah, polymath. Like That's a good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, oh, and recently I had uh, a novelist, Mylise Bessary. She's from France oh, yeah. and has written two books that are associated with Gallimard. Have you heard of oh, Gallimard? Oh, yeah, Gallimard, yeah. sure, yeah. The, 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 the most prestigious publisher in France, yeah. Oh, oh that's cool. She, she wrote, got a Goncourt. Uh, oh, first wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and most, most prestigious prize in France, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she is on top on top of the, 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 the stack, yeah. This is very cool. I like all the connections. The world mm -hmm. is not so large when you go into a category of depth. Yeah. Now, the internet is so much. I've, I've long ago I made a rap about it. I've <laughs> talked about it for many years. Mm -hmm. I've been on the various social media. So. Uh, the book that you have here, the internet is not what you think it is—a history, a philosophy, a warning. Mm -hmm. Is it? Would you describe it as more informational? Mm -hmm. uh, are you representing your philosophy to the world? Well, how is it presented? I mean, let's see. This is a peculiar book because it's. Its origin dates back to a piece that I wrote for the Point magazine in Chicago, um, which was, you know, non-academic, had nothing to do with my academic career. It was just a kind of um, a philippic or a tirade or what people today, much to my dissatisfaction, like to call a rant, right? Uh, I was griping about... Um, about uh, everything that I had felt by the end of 2018, the internet had uh, either stolen from us altogether or perverted and distorted beyond recognition. And that was uh, widely read and discussed. And um, there were some kind of suggestions at that moment that I, that I develop a book out of it. And I had thought for a while that it was going to be a book length extended rant, um, but and that it would go with a non-academic publisher. But in the end, it was my publisher, Princeton University Press, uh, that I'd been work, working with on several other books before uh, that uh, took it. Which meant that, you know, given that this was with a university press, I didn't want to disappoint my scholarly colleagues. So I wanted to uh, do something more than just um, just bemoan a problem and do it in my usual effort at 
kind of a creative, essayistic, um, authorial voice. Uh, but this meant that I had to also engage what I take to be central questions in the history and philosophy of science. Um, so trying to characterize the internet as, according to at least some of the norms and expectations of scholarship in the history and philosophy of science. Those were the, those were the two main um, uh, uh, uh objectives in the book, uh, but it, it kind of came together little by little, both as a kind of result, I mean, you could put this another way, say it's both a result of my longstanding interest in uh, the uh, certain developments in the history of technology, especially in the early modern period in the 17th century, especially in the work of Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, whom I hope I can talk about more soon. Uh, so that was my background scholarly interest. And then that came together with the fact that I'm addicted to social media and, and the uh, algorithm, algorithmization of our entire social reality has really ruined my life uh, along with those of billions of other people. Uh, and so, you know, it's both personal and scholarly. It's deeply personal and scholarly at the same time. It's got both. You could feel that a bit. Now, this topic is actually an important one you're mentioning, that a longer in-depth writing, maybe now called a rant, and then a short three-second clip online mm. is great, I guess, and scroll-worthy and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the largest point I think of when I think of the internet in its current form mm -hmm. versus how it kind of looked early on Yeah, when it yeah. started. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, I uh, I use the internet to download manuscripts from the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, you know, scanned versions of 18th century uh, texts, and I read them for hours on end. Uh, and that surely is an example of a use of the internet for the cultivation of a of 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 an ability or of a form of expertise that is continuous with what we were doing in the old days when we read books on paper, right? So obviously the internet is not just one thing. The problem or the problematic zone of the internet that most concerns me is what I sometimes call the phenomenological internet, the part that we're most familiar with, the part that, that, that pulls us back to check again or to upload our Twitter feed after 30 seconds, uh, 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 or, and what I also sometimes call the unnatural internet, right? The part that has been, again, distorted and perverted by uh, the algorithmic uh, preference of certain kinds of speech or gesture or meme or GIF uh, or TikTok dance video over others, which means that we're not living, we're not experiencing a neutral feed with information just coming in as it's produced, but rather we're subordinated to algorithms that effectively make communication in this meeting medium something more like a video game, trying to figure out how to game the algos, as we say. And ever since this has been the 
name of the game, which presumably started, or which I first started noticing sometime around 2011, we have been effectively tricked uh, into believing that we have a communication medium when in fact what we have is a is a massively multiplayer online video game that simulates um, communication without facilitating it. In my view. I've thought I've thought of these same concepts in the same time frame. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a certain group of individuals that all noticed this, a small group of individuals that it was very obvious mm-hmm. and as it happened, you were like, no, it's going, no, it's going that way. No, why, why, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. The larger demographic was not as noticing of that or else it wouldn't have happened that way. Right. Well, I don't know because I still know very smart people with very sincere commitments, say in politics, who continue to use, say, Twitter as if it were a viable medium for, uh, attempting to convince other people of the truth of their political commitments. And for me, it became so impossible. That became such a fool's errand already uh, over a decade ago that I don't know how other people can continue to do it. Yet I know these people are very smart. And so I assume that they just have a different relationship to their, their, their commitments than I do. Right. They don't get, they don't, they put them out there and then they don't, they don't maybe uh, worry so much about their uptake. They just do it um, because they believe their commitments are true. Whereas I am constantly uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, blocked by the perceived futility of doing so. And so what I attempt perhaps unsuccessfully, is moving up to a, so to speak, a higher order level of argumentation where I'm trying to characterize the medium itself in which we share our political commitments. But then what medium am I doing that in? Well, usually social media or some satellite of social media. And this is the other dimension of my primary argument in the book, though it's only becoming clearer now that I have to talk about the book so much. The other dimension of the argument is not just that um, that that social media are not a viable uh, medium of rational deliberation or anything like a public space for deli- for the pursuit of deliberative democracy or anything like that. The second part of the argument is that, moreover, everything at this point is social media, right? So in other words, um, I'm not interested in hearing, as people so often love to tell me, uh, it's like, you know, back in the 80s when people used to say, well, I don't own a television. Very much similarly today, you will hear people say, oh, well, I'm not on social media. Um, And when people say that to me, I want to say, who gives a shit? It doesn't matter if you're on social media or not, because what has happened is that social media or the, the structure that, uh, that has been honed and perfected on social media has jumped the screen, has jumped across the fence, and now structures so many things like dating, um, car sharing, 
uh, working in an Amazon warehouse and so on and so on. So that, um, so that even if you don't own a smartphone, even if you've never, uh, you've never, uh, signed up for any social media at all, the social reality you're moving in, unless you're like an anarcho primitivist out in the forest, like really hardcore, um, the social reality you're moving in is structured by social media. Right. So this kind of individual choice of not having social media, it, it makes no difference for the problem at the level I want to talk about it. Right. It's almost like there's a big ocean. We're all in the ocean. And then somebody's like, I didn't swim today. <laughs> OK, but maybe you're just waiting. in the. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We're all at least waiting in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It has a large impact like that. And it has pervaded every element. I, I don't know if it was on your content or elsewhere, but that even uh, books are yeah. connected with social, yeah, social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, authors always worried about their sales, but they didn't have to conceptualize their sales in terms of metrics, right? Uh, and now... Um, effectively, if your book is not doing numbers um, on social media, then it barely exists, right? That the same metrics that measure social media success measure a book success, right? And I think maybe uh, if you're not convinced by that argument, I think it's clearest in the case of scholarship. One of the reasons I love living in France is that uh, here, you know, famously, they're 10 to 15 years behind. Um, and this includes uh, basically everything, including the algorithmization of social reality. So basically everywhere but France by now, um, there uh, are metrics attached to uh, scholarly publications. And your your quality, your, your worth as a scholar, say when you're up for tenure, um, in places like the UK, it's ridiculous in the UK, they just look at the numbers, they look at your, your, your downloads on your electronically available publications. Um, and, you know, effectively, you could uh, outsource the work of downloading to a click farm in uh, Thailand, and just have people downloading your article there and the administrators would be happy with it. Now, that is obviously not good for anyone, right? Um, nope. And except, I mean, well, there's a complicated question about whether it's good for the, the, the click farm workers who can, who can make a profit of it. If it's good for anyone at all, it's the, it's the click farm workers. Um, but uh, 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 it's, it's just disastrous. It's terrible. And this is because uh, university administrators in all of their uh, short-sightedness and, and ignorance um, have uh, have uh, effectively allowed uh, the social mediatization of uh, the way a university functions. And this is just one example. It's one that I'm sensitive to, uh, but this is effectively the same thing that's happening uh, for Amazon workers or Uber drivers or, you know, wherever, whatever else uh, your lot in life is. When that happens, 
does that cut away at the innate quality that was there before, or does it alter what we call quality to something that has to take into account the public exposure and acceptance of it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the, 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 it's particularly tragic with scholarship and particularly with a field like philosophy, which is the one I'm nominally connected to, you know, where obviously um, uh, we have to hold open a space for the production of articles of work uh, that might not be downloaded for years or decades because nobody understands it and nobody understands how brilliant it is because the person who came up with it is a once in a century genius, right? And I'm not saying this is typical of uh, underperforming publications. What I'm saying is if you close off the possibility for the production of that kind of work, then uh, you are really betraying the field and the, I would say, the the glorious tradition. <laughs> um, There's something nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's also the case certainly with, um, with movies. I mean, why have movies got so astoundingly infantile in the past 10 years? It's because they're collecting metrics, um, not quite in the same way, but you know, these, um, these horrible fake Marvel movies uh, that, sorry, I don't mean to be so judgmental. Uh, I don't know what your personal views are, but I'm I'm, not, I'm I don't just, really like movies that much. I'm just, I'm just going for the, um, going for the jugular today. Uh, 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 these, these, these fake movies they've been putting out in the, for the past 10 years, you know, they, with the test audiences, one of the, one of the typical things they do now is track eyeballs. So the screen is literally watching the people watching it and they're seeing, you know, where the eyeballs go, they go towards the this or that action punch or kick, or they follow the money on the screen or, or whatever, and they hone and maximize whatever attracts the eyeballs um, in the in the final product, so that you are literally not watching anything that uh, issues from anyone's creative vision. Right, you're looking at something that is crowdsourced for maximum attention extraction, and that is I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not afraid to say this. That is not a movie, right? I mean, arguably they were doing they were doing uh, somewhat primitive forms of this earlier. It's Stephen Fry who told me that um, that early on, like in the you know still in the studio era in Hollywood. They were doing some kind of tracking where they made some very interesting discoveries. Like even if you have a naked woman on the on a part of the screen and a pile of money on the other part of the screen, the eyes go to the money. Right? Um, I, I forget the exact source he gave me, but um, you know that kind of thing has been around for decades. But now the 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 science of attention extraction is honed and perfected in cinema uh, or in post-cinema, you might say, in, um, uh, uh, in just as sophisticated a way as the feedback looping of the algorithmic extraction of attention is online, right? 
two things come to mind there one is like the amazon bookstores that were popular or not popular but around these this past year or two mm. we go to the bookstore it's a little bit odd because they picked the most popular books yeah. so it doesn't feel like a bookstore when you go in there you feel like you're just seeing there's something the interesting has been sucked out of it when that happens yeah it's just yeah yeah most bought yeah yeah and yeah yeah it's and, sort of yeah and the the the, the trade publishers are only looking at the metrics and they know, I mean, I, you know, I know because one of the reasons my book defaulted back to my university publisher is because, you know, I think I balked when I started talking to trade publishers and I learned what's going on. It's shocking. You know, they can tell you, uh, like what the expected, uh, uh, profits will be based on the, average number of syllables per word in a book, right? Um, and so the end product, I'm reviewing a book right now that was published with Norton, and the end product is by by someone who is a philosopher. Um, I, I, <laughs> who I'm thinking of suited up will become clear when the review is out, but it is shocking how, how, how infantile the imagined reader is is thought to be right basically to publish a book with norton you cannot presume any shared background knowledge about anything about any person who ever existed no matter how famous somehow you're still allowed to presume a shared background knowledge of the english language because otherwise you couldn't read it at all but i i fear that that's its way out soon enough right it's crazy that is it's like a reduction to the lowest common denominator in a yeah. way and it's the the expansion part which i'm very excited about in life is limited to a select production entity and then the consolidation part is heavy these days where mm -hmm. everything is pulled back pulled back pulled back yeah. to the point of little bits and no interesting yeah. elements yeah 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 we noticed that heavily yeah yeah now on the concept of how this relates in social media and mm -hmm. connection that you mentioned earlier connectivity mm -hmm. is is there an element where it can increase in depth of connection or has that already is this a guaranteed decline over time well it's hard because i mean part of part of the very kind of personal autobiographical story of this that i have to keep returning to as a sort of caveat to anyone who's listening to me or reading me is that in the end um i might just be a disgruntled old has been um who is angry that the world changed so much uh uh at a certain point in my life and i couldn't keep up right so i say that because i'm very aware and sensitive to the fact that there are plenty of 20 somethings out there who are riding the wave and who experience their position in the new uh, technologically mediated reality as one of tremendous freedom, right? And ultimately, I'm a Spinozist about what freedom is. I believe that it's a, it's a kind of uh, uh, a sentiment that accompanies 
if you're lucky, that accompanies the uh, kind of unfolding of events in a deterministic order, right? And so if you if you are enjoying the determinism, then you're free. If if you find it disagreeable, then you're unfree. So I'm aware that there are plenty of 20-somethings on social media who feel free. Um, and I can't, uh, on my own, uh, argue that they're mistaken, right? Um, and so the, at the personal level, I'm aware of this. At the structural level, though, I think this is a pretty... Uh, a pretty uh, narrow pathway for which the experience of freedom to, uh, to, to unfold. And I worry for anyone who's riding high now that they're going to fall off the wave like I feel I have. Um, and uh, uh, why is this narrow? Well, in part because it distorts and etiolates uh, the possibility of affective exchange, right? Of real affective exchange in the uh, kind of within the, let's say, smelling distance of other human beings, <laughs> right? And this is important. It's evolutionally important. It's, um, it's important for uh, the kind of phenomenology of, uh, uh, what, of what Heidegger would call being with someone, right? Um, uh, and, you know, we sometimes now have the the face of the other to keep on this phenomenological bent, right, that that philosophers like Levinas held to be so important. I mean, do are we seeing each other's faces right now? Kind of, more or less, yeah, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's still, um, it's still a pretty diminished form of human encounter. I'm not saying it's not good. I mean, we're doing, and we're doing our best here, but it's, uh, right. it's pretty diminished. And when that happens, it seems to me that, um, you know, in the end, even our encounters with other human beings are one fears, um, uh, 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 solipsistic, right? We are, we remain in our own heads, even when we're smelling and touching and seeing the other's face directly. Right. Nonetheless, when we're really off in our little hikikomori bubble, uh, in our uh, in our little pod, um, and we are just getting little uh, mimetic signals or emojis uh, across the ether, um, then it only increases that much more the kind of monadic or solipsistic experience of being with other human beings. That is, like, we're with other human beings uh, only very remotely. And I know, of course, you can fall in love um, across the internet. You can do profound things across the internet, but you can also fall in love with fictional characters in novels, right? Um, people often do. You can fall in love with... Um, with uh, a figure in a painting. And those are profound experiences. Uh, 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 but we generally agree that if you spend your life only falling in love with fictional characters in novels, then you're missing out on at least part of what many human beings have considered to be uh, the human good, 
right? So yeah, I I, I would make make this pretty bold claim and just say I, I think that um, that our atomized and distanced and social media mediated communication impoverishes and distorts uh, uh, our 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 most basic uh, human experiences. Yeah. But I mean, I'm like, I'm obviously not the only person to say that that's, that's, um, um, you know, kind of almost a cliche at this point, but sometimes, sometimes you just have to be honest and affirm a cliche, right? I think about it in terms of bandwidth as well, such mm. that, whereas before we had, um, well, there's two ways I look at it, but one of them, I once went up to a pair of people. I, I used to make videos where I talked to people and mm. I said, um, it's nice that we have this interaction and I asked them something about, do they do video? This was many years ago before this. And then I talked about the lower levels of interaction. Like mm. there's text and then it would be a phone call with voice mm. then it would be like a video and then it would be in person mm. uh, or then it would be a virtual reality, I guess. And then in person would be mm. the highest bandwidth. And we have given up the highest level bandwidth connections yeah. to have the lowest, like one bit click, like, yeah. uh, transfers. Yeah. And it narrows like you're describing. Yeah. Do you think this narrowing is a, uh, large vulnerability or enough bandwidth in there can make a person feel satisfied? Well, again, I mean, I'm often, um, just kind of blown away. Like, like, I mean, I, yeah, I get, we have, there's a private emoji language between me and my significant other. And when I get a single emoji of a certain sort, and I know what it means, I'm delighted when that emoji is with, withheld. Uh, I'm like, uh Oh, this, what's wrong, you know, and I'm anxious for the rest of the day until I see her and so Good on. Point. Right. And um, so like that, you know, that shows that, you know, you can, you can communicate a lot with a single symbol, right? Um, but that also involves a whole background of knowledge. But also here, you know, when I see the way um, people who are on the wave on Twitter, for example, young influencers and, uh, uh, or, you know, like lists and yeah. threads. Well, the, no, the, I see the way they, um, they communicate tremendous meaning, uh, by, uh, you know, very simple alteration of punctuation, for example, um, the, the convention of not putting a question mark after a question, for example, to, um, to, I suppose, to signify one's membership in a certain uh, in-group. This becomes a, a sort of shibboleth, like you know how to do, do questions the right way on social media. It's tremendously powerful, right? Like, like, and, and so, so the power is not necessarily just between two people who share a whole background, uh, intimate uh, language at home. It's also be between people who don't necessarily know each other. So it's a powerful medium. It can be very powerful, um, but again, even where it's powerful, it's it's distorting, right? I've noticed what you're just describing in the NFT space. There's mm. 
phrases that they say, like GM for good morning. Yeah. It's like a common language between all of them. Yeah. Like yeah, uh, it yeah. means good morning, but also keep investing and all of us are on the yeah. way to success. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just two little, little words. Yeah. Yeah. Two little letters. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. It is interesting. That's true. I like that you brought up that example of just the emoji can have that. So even, but what about the idea that uh, it only has that weight because it is connected to uh, higher bandwidth moments. No, no, but what I, but that's time. that's the point about um, these uh, these subcultural sociolects, if you can call them that, on 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 social media, like like the GM for the NFT crowd, right? Like these people don't know each other, but they're still able to pack a lot of meaning into just two letters, right? And I mean, I suppose this is uh, this preci- this kind of uh, 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 depth of uh, 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 human uh, communication precedes the internet, right? I mean, there's there's huge power packed into a simple gang hand sign or something like that, even though you know it is intrinsically very minimal and meaningless, right? Um, and so yeah. we've always operated this way. Uh, and but I, I I think again that that somehow that um, that that depth and power of uh, and, and and that economy of human communication is preserved very well uh, on uh, in, in social media communication and yet uh, w- there is something human being uh, being being blocked and again I think the better word is distorted or diminished hmm. now one thing i want to return to before uh, other topic is you had mentioned leibniz i don't hmm. know if i pronounced yeah, exactly yeah, right yeah. and what what do you take away from leibniz and his work that connects with what you say well we do say leibniz but that's okay it's an leibniz. it's leibniz. an it's an <laughs> ei ei is always i in german ie is always e um uh, which makes it easy. Uh, so Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, lived from 1646 to 1716, German philosopher, uh, also a mathematician, um, uh, informatician or computer scientist, um, cryptographer, uh, diplomat. Um, he really was all over the place, a true polymath. Um, the best representative of that type uh, in the early modern period, when there were a lot of them, a lot more than there are today. Um, now, Leibniz uh, was significant for computer science for a couple of reasons. One is that he built in around 1678, uh, uh, as far as we can tell, a functioning reckoning engine. Uh, that is to say, a kind of mechanical calculator. Um, but he was also working on the binary calculus, and he recognized that all information can be encoded in zeros and ones, so that once you can do that, potentially, you could run any information at all through a reckoning engine, right? So he conceptualized the computer, even though all he was able to produce in his lifetime was a functioning calculator. Right. Um, And he also conceptualized various schemes for networking uh, machines. Um, And so 
ultimately these come together, you know, the history of telecommunications and the history of computing. Computing has been around since about 1830 with the analytical engine of Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. Uh, the telegraph has been around since about 1840, and then the two come together in networked computers in the mid to late 20th centuries, right? But uh, all of these components were already at least conceptualized by Leibniz. So he was unquestionably a key figure in this history. But what interests me more is that he was a resolute optimist about all of this. He's famous for having been an optimist about everything, but he really sincerely believed that the, what I like to call the, the uh, uh, pro prosthetic externalization or the outsourcing of our rational faculty to machines um, would bring about tremendous improvements in human society. So he proposed the slogan, calculemus, let us calculate. And he actually thought that whenever human beings were blocked in the solution of any problem, including complex social problems that we today see as specifically depending on the passions and ultimately the irrationality of human beings, uh, such as war, for example, such as going to war, uh, Leibniz thought that someday in the future we'll just be able to punch into our machines uh, what the arguments of the respective enemy empires are, and we'll see which one is right, and that will enable us to not have a war, right? So it will be world peace. Uh, and that optimism about what the um, uh, external, what the outsourcing of our reasoning power to machines could deliver to society, as I see it, constitutes one of the long chapters of the history of the internet, which I date from 1678 to sometime in the early to mid 2010s, right? So it's a long history and we have all lived through the, uh, the end of it. Right. We weren't there at the beginning, but we were there at the end. Um, and that end is namely uh, the, the 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 few years uh, again, say 2011, the which is when the Arab Spring uh, revolutions went to hell, uh, even though a few months earlier they had been declared to be like, you know, the the fruit of Twitter uh, delivering democracy throughout the developing world. Uh, so 2011, uh, 2015, Cambridge Analytica, Trump, etc. cetera. Um, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say exactly when it happened, but at some point in that period, it became impossible to share uh, Leibnizian optimism about, um, about what, uh, what, uh, outsourced reason is going to deliver to us. And that's the that's the most important uh, 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 history or chapter in the history of the internet, to my mind. And it it it's a long history that begins far before most people think of the internet as 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 as, as having existed. Just outsourced reason. The concept is one great thing is conceptual nature is it it is always realized at some further point if it has 
some merit, yeah. especially with those that have a strong internal frame yeah. that may show up later on. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I, I point out in the book is that I hate it when, um, when tech people talk about proof of concept, right? Like, what the hell is a proof of concept, right? Like, if you have the concept, that is its own proof, right? What they should be saying is uh, proof that the concept may be uh, uh, realized as a, as a physical entity, right? Um, so, so, you know, Leibniz already had proof of concept, right? Um, I mean, there were people in ancient, like Lucian, a, a first century Greek author, described going to the moon and listening in on conversations that happen everywhere on earth with a giant like listening saucer. So, uh, you know, Lucian had proof of concept of satellite technology in the first century in antiquity, right? Uh, so let's be clear, we don't mean proof of concept, we mean uh, proof of, um, Proof that the concept can be can be realized. Um, so and where reality is is uh, is a physical tool, right? Um, so, uh, but indeed, it is important in my view as a broadly speaking historian and philosopher of technology to think about uh, the role that conceptualizations play in the history of technology. So we shouldn't be paying attention primarily to uh, inventors, you know, the, the firsts who actually uh, make the tool. We should be paying attention to the people who say, what if there were such a tool, right? Um, and there's a history to that and you can, you can uncover the history and it teaches you a lot about what it is people are doing when they finally get the tool. Right. So in other words, and you know, Ada Lovelace recognizes this very clearly in the early 19th century, like she and Babbage build uh, an, an analytic engine, but they are uh, constantly reflecting on the heritage that they draw from at least 200 years earlier. And even Norbert Wiener in the 1960s with cybernetics uh, is talking about um, is talking about Leibniz and the debt that um, that computing has to, to to Leibniz, and you know I think it's really only in the past few decades that we've started to think that um, you know nothing has a history; things just popped out of nowhere ex nihilo after after Y two K or something. <laughs> On that one, actually, specifically to that, I've talked about this. What do you think about the concept that uh, we are like it's like a relay race and we're taking the baton from Wittgenstein or mm. Leibniz and some things I read from 500, 800, 1000 mm. years ago I'm like oh, okay it's almost like he's just saying that and Armin you go with it or somebody uh, yeah. continue it on well look I mean I I, th I think about this a lot with you know am I, am I a, a technophile am I an anarcho primitivist well, I'm neither. My, my firm conviction is that um, there is some kind of law of conservation that ensures that with each new, uh, each new technological revolution, there will be something lost, um, but we'll cultivate new, uh, new abilities um, in new ways. And I think a lot can be learned from looking at the history of the of, of printing in the book, uh, which happened in the early modern period. 
um, and which, um, you know, also led to social upheavals and which led to the loss of certain forms of um, cognitive processing of bodies of knowledge, right? This is like the, the great uh, uh, Renaissance historian Francis Yates wrote this book in the uh, 1960s called The Art of Memory, you know it? Um, and, um, and, you know, she describes these wonderful things that people did with their minds before they had books to, um, to assist them. Um, so, you know, there was already something wonderful that was lost with the arrival of the printing press and we're losing things again. I've had, I've met American students recently who literally don't know what a novel is. Um, they, they think the word is a synonym of book, right? So there's been a profound revolution over the past 20 years. Um, people who are my age, I think, continue to underestimate the, the totality of this revolution. Um, and uh, is it a good thing? Eh, I don't know, uh, something gained and something lost. That's all you can ever really say about any revolution. Um, and as for philosophy, because that's that this is a re, that's what you brought up initially, and I, the point I've been making is related, but not exactly the same. As for philosophy, I mean, all I can say is, look, I mean, Aristotle had the same anatomically modern human brain that I have, uh, that anyone alive today has, um, and there's absolutely no reason why he should not have been thinking things that are just as profound and insightful and just as successful at capturing the nature of reality as, as what we say today, right? I'm strongly committed to that. I'm strongly committed to the idea that there has been zero progress um, uh, uh, in the, the human intellect um, since uh, as long as we are able to track its progress through written traces uh, and that it's getting neither better nor worse. It's 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 staying exactly the same because our brains are still the same. Right. <laughs> I've I've spoken on this concept like we have the same vasopressin receptors or mm -hmm. uh, neuron pathways yeah. and yeah that hasn't changed. Yeah. The outside has changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a little bit. That's funny. And then I think I was thinking of uh, other Yates that the uh, WB Yates but not mm. that one. So <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Francis Yates was a woman. Um Oh. Yeah, yeah. Francis Francis A. Yates, The Art of Memory. It's a wonderful book. And it's Y-A-T-E-S, not Y-E-A-T-S, oh. like W-B. That one is different. Yeah. Now, on the concept of conceptualization, you had described Mark Zuckerberg and when people think of social media, it always goes towards Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Yeah. Is conceptualization that the internet would yeah. be open and connected. Mm. Uh, is that something that his concept could build out or maybe something that his uh, mindset could not match with the collective public could connect with? Well, I mean, obviously there are forces at work that are far beyond his control. I think he's not really smart enough in certain regards to understand uh, what his agents, what the limits of his own agency are and also what the, what the problems are what the full extent of the problems are with what he's unleashed. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure whether he believes his own rhetoric about Facebook, um, you know, just keeping people connected and 
helping to foster community and stuff like that. Um, it's uh, so obviously not the full story, even if it sometimes does that, uh, that, um, that anyone who's, who's both honest and lucid um, would have to recognize it. But it might just be that he's constrained by his job, by his his role as the as you know the 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 the, the spokesperson for this that he can't do that, right? Um, but in, in other in other words, I mean Zuckerberg is not a reliable um, a reliable source of uh, let's say evaluation of the of the dangers and benefits of social media, right? Um, connected to his company like that. Yeah, That's true. Yeah. That's a valid point. Now, the last thing I wanted to include on this one is, uh, what does the average person think the internet is and what would we tell them or what might be, we inform them about that it actually is? Well, I, I think in the book, I mean, the internet is not what you think it is in two senses. One sense is the one that, uh, kind of opens uh, chapter two, I use that sentence, the internet is not what you think it is. Uh, and that's the, that, that's the chapter that was excerpted in Wired magazine, where I talk about uh, what I take to be the important similarities to other uh, networks in nature, like mycorrhizal uh, networks on the roots of trees. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the I mean, this was popularized in journalism maybe a decade ago, the idea of the wood wide web. Um, and, um, you know, it sounds kind of dorky, but, you know, it really does describe something that I think I think it's worth paying attention to as philosophers of the Internet, which is the fact that this is maybe something like a um, uh, a fully predictable outgrowth or excrescence of our species-specific activity, right? Um, and we should think of it within a broader um, ecological context. Uh, so uh, in that respect, uh, the internet doesn't just go back to 1678, it goes back hundreds of millions of years, right? Um, to uh, uh, long before human beings evolved. Uh, so that's, that's one respect. The other respect is one that I've already articulated, uh, which is that, uh, you know, maybe the more kind of politically urgent respect, which is that um, uh, if you think it is, as many people seem to do, or at least their conduct suggests they do, if you think it is a uh, neutral, uh, public public space uh, that facilitates deliberation, you're wrong. Um, it's a video game that allows you to pretend to be uh, engaging in deliberation with others. And again, that's the more uh, the more dangerous uh, dimension of 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 at least a, a corner of the internet. But it's the corner that most of us spend most of our time in. It's a great point. I like the hard-hitting nature of that because that there's also a shortage of hard-hitting nature in recent times. So yeah. any elements that actually say things are, yeah, uh, we're glad for that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. On this one here, I would like to thank you for having joined on the episode, uh, discussing a bit from this wonderful 
book of yours, The Internet Is Not What You Think It Is, A History of Philosophy, A Warning, and sharing wonderful philosophy to take away and think about for all of us. Thanks for having me. It is a great thing. And we are out. <laughs>